Hello, hello. I wanted to hop on really quick and give you guys a trigger warning before the episode starts. Uh, my washer is going batshit crazy in the background. Uh, sorry, it's 11 p.m. and uh, it's Thursday night and I should have edited this podcast earlier. Um, but anyways, so this uh, episode centers entirely around eating disorders. So we obviously talk about eating disorders and the behaviors that they include. We talk about body dysmorphia, trauma, PTSD, childhood abuse, mental health, and we talk about specific disorders, including personality disorders. We talk about diet culture, suicide, and there is a brief mention of sexual abuse. So just for context, um, as someone who struggles with eating disorder and with an eating disorder, uh, I did not find this episode triggering, um, and I typically am highly triggered by eating disorder content. Um, If anything, I felt that Megan and what she spoke about um, was very validating and encouraging and, um, made me feel very seen and very heard. And, um, it was very educational. So, um, I just want to give you guys that context as well, because I know sometimes I just kind of check out when I hear that something's going to be about something that I know triggers me. And I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of context on that, that I, I, I don't think that it's, uh, triggering in the sense of like, I don't know. I just think it's more educational than it is um, intense. But yeah, so if you guys choose to listen to this episode, I hope you enjoy. If not, I totally understand. Um, But either way, here we go. Hi, all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about eating disorders with Megan Watson of Bloom Psychology and Thrive with Meg. How are you doing today? I'm okay. I'm doing all right. You know, living through a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lot. Um, Well, I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of space to um, share a little bit of your background. Um, Your Instagram page um, is... I was going to say blooming and not intentionally as a pun, but (laughs) it is. Um, So if you want to share a little bit about that and kind of how you got started in talking about these type of topics. Yeah. My name is Megan Watson. I am a registered psychotherapist um, licensed in Canada, specifically Toronto um, is where I'm located. And I own and manage a group therapy practice called Bloom Psychology and Wellness, where we offer resources and therapy directed at the BIPOC and the LGBTQIA community. My clinical experience is really rooted in a lot of intense and acute care. So my background is in inpatient, residential, and day treatment um, levels of care, specifically within eating disorders and in the trans youth community. Um, But now I primarily work in private practice. I don't work within institutions anymore. And um, I currently work, um, you know, as just a private practice clinician focusing on getting people connected to their best self. Of course, I work with people who have eating disorders. I work with people who have trauma. I work with people who struggle with relationship issues. And so my expertise is really rooted in those experiences and that clinical background. Awesome. Well, um, today we're going to focus and kind of hone in on eating disorders. Um, I felt like this was a topic that would be really beneficial because for one, so many people grow up with just diet culture and how that just kind of ruins so much of your childhood, honestly, growing up, like seeing so many expectations and can be really healthy for a lot of people coming into adulthood. And, um, my audience is kind of primarily a lot of, you know, 18 to like 25 year olds. And I've had a lot of my audience express their experience with, um, eating disorders or eating disorder tendencies or body dysmorphia. And, um, I think it's becoming something that's a little bit more normalized. Um, and as all things, whenever they become normalized or start to become normalized, um, people are starting to like self-diagnose and, you know, we've, we've swung maybe a little bit too far on the pendulum, but that kind of always happens. So I wanted to try to do an episode where we have someone like you who is trained, has expertise and actually can speak on it from a position where you do have kind of a little bit of authority in this in this field compared to just, you know, all the different infographics on Instagram where people can kind of read through and get misinformation and 
self-diagnose or misdiagnose. Um, and I think it's really beneficial to actually look to someone who is, you know, trained and licensed in this and uh, has the the place to speak on it, um, which I am not that person. So hence why you are here. So I kind of wanted to start off by just um, for those who aren't aware or maybe need a refresher, what are the primary eating disorders and kind of could you give like a brief explanation of those? Yeah. I think, you know, there's definitely the most uh, the b- most predominant in popular culture, which would be anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, um, as well as binge eating disorder. Um, there's atypical anorexia and there's, you know, little qualifiers in the DSM if we're thinking from a diagnostic perspective on whether um, these disorders are atypical or traditional and the way that the diagnostic categories are developed, um, it's not super, it's not super grounded in um, a diverse voice experience. You know, it really is a few people who get to make the decision. So, you know, even with knowing the diagnostic qualifications, I would just give a caveat that the people designing the DSM are not always the people that are seeing the clients per se. Um, That being said, there's also avoidant food restrictive intake disorder. Um, And so kind of starting back from the bottom to the top, ARFID, as it is known, is really an aversion to texture, taste, smells, um, and a difficulty in engaging in food intake and nutritional intake because of those uh, psychological um, barriers. You know, binge eating disorder is really a disorder in which you feel like you've been eating a lot more than you normally want to. You am past the point of fullness and there's a considerable amount of shame, disgust and self-loathing about your body, about yourself, about who you are as a result of that behavior. Bulimia nervosa is similar in some respects to binge eating disorder. However, um, the things that people engage to binge and ultimately purge, which is a diagnostic feature of bulimia, the binge purge cycle, um, is that purging can happen in lots of different ways. It's not just throwing up, right? Not to be crude, (laughs) but no, yeah. It's, it's not just uh, throwing up, it can be overexercising, it can be, you know, um, orthorexia, um, which is a focus on clean eating, um, that can sometimes uh, be a bit of an atypical uh, bulimia presentation in which they try to manage their binges through uh, very rigid and prescriptive ways of engaging with nutrition and food. Orthorexia itself is a separate category that I can talk about, but um, it's not a diagnostic uh, disorder in the DSM. It is a feature that is known, but it's not actually a diagnostic disorder. Um, I think the last one is anorexia nervosa. um, And Anorexia is really characterized by restriction. I think a lot of people assume that it just means that you're super skinny and you're malnourished and underfed, but anorexia nervosa does not have a BMI category anymore. Um, So you don't have to be a particular size to have a diagnosis with anorexia nervosa. Um, You just have to restrict your food intake to the point where it is no longer healthy for you and you have this desire, this strong, strong desire beyond anything else that you want in your life to be slim, to be thin, um, and to not engage with food in the ways that, you know, people who don't have an eating disorder might engage very relaxed, very uh, joyfully with food. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the BMI aspect because that was kind of something that I wanted to dive into. Um, I think there's often this misconception that if you are not overly thin, then you can't have an eating disorder. Um, so what is the reality of that? Can you have an eating disorder at any weight? How does that work? Yes, you can. In fact, it's likely that you will have an eating disorder at many different weights. I've had clients who, um, 
you know, present originally with anorexia nervosa in their like youth, you know, maybe they begin to start restricting their food because they see that other people are on diets and they want to be skinny for this event, or they want to look good to be in X relationship or to feel better about themselves. And so it starts very benign um, as a way to improve your body, to engage in this optimization of self. And that over control of food tends to, you know, slip into severe restriction and malnutrition. Um, but restriction and malnutrition doesn't always look the same on everyone. And so depending on where your body is at and what your uh, natural set point is, which is a way of describing where your body naturally falls in terms of weight, shape and size, um, will determine what restriction looks like. Sometimes restriction and um, other eating disorders can only really be picked up through blood work, right? And so seeing where the vitamin deficiencies are, the mineral nutrition deficiencies are, um, seeing different levels like potassium and chloride, your electrolyte levels, especially if you engage in purging or overexercise, those are major indicators of eating disorders more so than what you look like in any capacity. That's interesting. Um, And I think another thing that would be great to clear up, I think a lot of this episode might just be clearing up some myths because I think there's a lot of different misconceptions surrounding eating disorders. And I think it can often prevent people from seeking treatment because they don't feel like they kind of fall into the right box or they don't you know, check all the criteria that society has kind of created, not necessarily diagnostic criteria, but more so like societal criteria. And then you kind of fall into this cycle where maybe you really are in a position where you need help, but you don't quite feel like you qualify. Um, I know that was how I felt personally, that I, for a very long time, assumed that anorexia meant that you never ate anything which if you think about it, doesn't make any sense um, no. <laughs> because you have to eat food in order to survive. Um, and although people do lose their life to anorexia, it would, it would be very quick if that was just like you never ate anything ever. I mean, it wouldn't be a disorder that you could have for years on end. Um, but for some reason, that was something that I assumed of anorexia for a very long time. And I would literally qualify my own eating habits and say, oh, well, I, I eat. Like I eat, I don't have any, I, I eat. And it's like, well, yes, but that you, ha- so does everyone. Everyone has to eat in order to survive, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a healthy relationship with food or that it's not needing disorder. Um, so aside from anorexia, like what are some other kind of misconceptions or ways that these disorders are misunderstood, whether that be through society or just kind of like common mis- misconceptions? Um, You know, I think one of the major ones is that you don't have to be sick to get help. I think a lot of people, and this is rightly maybe a a balance between the reality of how hard it is to actually access competent treatment and how expensive it is to access competent treatment. And so a lot of people make these qualifiers of, I need to be at X place in order to receive treatment because the behaviors I'm engaging in now, the feelings I feel about myself are not valid or legitimate enough to seek support. And I think a lot of that has to do with our society and how we've set up access to care and what insurance companies reimburse for, you know, as a provider in an eating disorder clinic, I was on the phone with insurance review boards every single day, just trying to fight for one extra day with a client to, to do the treatment work. You know, can you give me an extra two weeks? Here's my reason why I'm constantly justifying to these like disembodied voices in the phone who would ask me to prove why it is that someone who has never had a healthy relationship with food, who has not been able to find the motivation yet to get better and really deserves and benefits from the treatment that we are trying to provide, um, why they should get it. And I think that leaves a lot of people in a place of, well, if my insurance company doesn't think that I'm sick enough, if my doctor doesn't think I'm sick enough, if even my therapist can't convince me that I think I'm sick enough, then why should I get help? 
I think that is the biggest misconception that you have to look a certain way. You have to have certain experience of life. You need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be worthy enough or valid enough to get the support that you need. Um, another one that I really uh, notice is that, and specifically, this is very niche to what I do, is that Black people don't have eating disorders. <laughs> they don't have eating disorders. And I think that's a huge misconception for the BIPOC community because the cultural and the beauty standards might be a little bit different in terms of shape, weight, and size. But at the end of the day, the rate of eating disorders for the BIPOC community equal, if not exceed in some categories, um, specifically bulimia and binge eating disorder. And so I think if there's anything that people should know is that you don't know who has an eating disorder. It doesn't really matter what they weigh. I've had clients who, you know, would be considered much larger than the average body. They exist in bodies that are much larger, um, that are more stigmatized than most and have severe eating disorders that need inpatient and residential treatment. You would be surprised um, at what you see in treatment. And so I think if there's anything um, like major, major misconceptions. Of course, there's lots of nuance within each disorder, but those are the main two that I come across constantly. Am I sick enough? And do I deserve this treatment? Yeah. And that's such a good point because, uh, I think in my mind, you only seek treatment if you're like close to death. <laughs> Which is that seems so silly. Yeah, that seems so silly. But like, and I honestly truly think that when we can kind of transition into media here, but I think that that is so intensely affected by the media. Um, I don't really think I received, I mean, really any education about eating disorders other than like maybe a little bit in health class where it was like very brief in a textbook. But I think that the education that I did receive was through these kind of like teen shows where you see the rich white New York girl who weighs like 80 pounds and is like very, very, very sick. And she has to go away to like this, like, mm. you know, center. And it's kind of always stigmatized and kind of looked down upon. And it's seen as kind of this like rich white girl disease, which it just, you know, perpetuates a lot of stereotypes and a lot of misconceptions that. I didn't really think I realized were harmful until adulthood when it was like, oh, that impacted how I viewed myself and how I viewed my own eating disorder. And the fact that I did not know I had an eating disorder until I was like 20. And I had had eating disorder tendencies starting at age like 12 and had no idea. And I think part of that was just, I didn't match that, that description of being like incredibly thin or being um, very, very, very sick um, and having it like drastically impact my physical health. I didn't really feel a lot of those different things. And so I just was like, well, I'm fine, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is so harmful. Um, so I, I guess moving into culture and media, how how else, I think the the representation, like the diverse representation is a great point because they, it's always white girls in the media, um, almost always. How has that, those different uh, inaccurate representations in the media and culture on magazines and TV shows, how has that impacted uh, the way people view eating disorders and like, how is that harmful? I can only speak for the clients that I see in terms of how they view their eating disorders, but um, I think it causes a lot of people to to push themselves into behaviors that are more extreme in order to get the support that they need. I think eating disorders aren't just the act of restricting or binging or even purging because it's all about the intention behind that behavior. You know, you could have food poisoning and throw up, but for someone else that could be a purge. And I think it's really important to think about like the way that you are seen in popular culture and the way that you look to popular culture and media to define what it means to have an eating disorder, the less you engage in that introspection and self-knowledge around the beliefs that you hold that push you into disordered eating. And 
the more you have that knowledge that disordered eating in many ways, like depression, looks a lot different depending on who is experiencing it and the belief systems that underlie that, because it's not always about the food for eating disorders. If it was, it would be a lot easier for people to spot that they have an eating disorder before they do. Sometimes it's about anxiety. Sometimes it's about trauma. Sometimes it's about feelings of inadequacy and undeservingness or unworthiness. And so depending on where your eating disorder comes from will shape the way that the behavior presents in your life. And so if we don't show a diversity in popular culture and media around what eating disorders can be or what they may be related to or the experiences that people have that push them into disordered eating patterns, then we're not going to get a nuanced take of what an eating disorder might look like. Someone who has an eating disorder um, like ARFID because of a traumatic experience of sexual abuse as a child is going to have a different presentation of eating disorder than someone who has been consuming magazines and Instagram reels and, you know, really subscribed in mind, body and spirit to diet culture and how they behave. It's going to be completely different because the motivation for the behavior is different. So I think if you are struggling with wondering, like, is what I'm feeling an eating disorder, you know, allow yourself to leave the the diagnosing to the professionals and not pathologize yourself into something that you don't think exists really. Because I think for many people, they have similar experiences like you. They don't really know that they've had an eating disorder. They had disordered eating tendencies because it's normalized because that's what you see. It's normal, quote unquote, to go on a diet. It's normal to, you know, um, not eat before a big event because you want to fit into a certain outfit. It's normal, quote unquote, and we see that in media to, you know, engage in over-exercise and compensatory behaviors after you eat a lot of food. These are all things that are normalized in our families, in our homes, in our culture, in our society. And so if that's all we see, and what we do is maybe a little different than that, we're not going to see it in ourselves. We're not going to spot it in ourselves. Yeah, I think so much of it comes from how, even how you grew up. I have so many friends that it if you can already have like eating disorder tendencies just in your household and how you grew up and it's so hard because our moms didn't know better like you know it's it's like there's like grief for like our like my parents generation as well because it breaks my heart that like that was passed down in so many ways and almost all of my friends like they're any of their body dysmorphia or diet culture tendencies like come directly from their parents being on diets and them kind of just like following their parents' footsteps. Um, And I also kind of wanted to chat about the mental health aspect of this, because obviously it is drastically intertwined with the physical health and um, the mortality rates of eating disorders as a mental health disorder are really up there especially i think i believe anorexia is like the number one has the highest mortality rate of any mental health disorder Mm -hmm. um so for those who maybe this is a new conversation for them how can eating disorders affect your mental health and how are they kind of you know hand in hand and how can even some other mental health disorders impact eating disorders yeah i think What I normally see um, most often is a correlation between your upbringing, whether that was toxic, traumatic, or distorted in the way attachment was formed. Um, And those difficulties in upbringing can cause a lot of different mental health disorders. One being post-traumatic stress disorder. If you have engaged in... um, You know, if you've been a part of a family that had a lot of abuse, that had a lot of neglect, um, whether that's emotional, mental, physical, sexual, whatever it is, then it's likely that the traumatic response might be one that looks like an eating disorder, but it is related to PTSD. So that's when one way that the two can be layered. 
Um, another one I see a lot is personality disorders. I think personality disorders get a really bad rap because they are characterological, meaning that they're embedded in how you exist within the world as a person. And I think personality disorders are highly stigmatized because it is the belief that if you have a personality disorder, that you can't change, that nobody can change their personality. And that's bullshit. Um, I think, you know, I see a lot of dependent personality disorder, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, a lot of borderline personality disorder. Um, you know, those are the main ones that I see interlap. And a lot of them have to do with the rigidity that and the consistency and the regularity in which you have engaged in eating disorder behaviors. And some of that behavior management of your mood, whether that be depression or hypomania, right? You could have also have bipolar disorder and engage in a lot of problematic behaviors. Um, but speaking specifically about personality disorders, a lot of the ways that they present um, mis- are are hidden <laughs> in other disorders as well, too, right? There's mood swings, there's rigidity, there's um, difficulty in uh, interpersonal communication and engagement and effectiveness. There's challenges with um, attachment and abuse and trauma. And so I see a lot of those diagnoses, but again, and people really struggle with them if they're layered on top of an eating disorder because it's almost like chicken and egg. What came first? <laughs> um, do you have bipolar disorder or do you have an eating disorder? And the answer is probably both. You know, you likely use your eating disorder to deal with the challenging mood swings of bipolar disorder or borderline personality disorder. You yeah. likely navigate your bipolar disorder through, um, you know, the, the behaviors when you're hypomanic might be to restrict eating and stay up all night and to feel super creative and energized. And that's a, a valued state for people, um, mania and hypomania, because it feels good. You feel elated. And so in many ways, those feelings of joy, those feelings of relief that come with mood swings can often positively reinforce negative behavior patterns that exist when they're happening. So if you've been restricting every time you have a manic episode, but nobody's ever told you that you're having manic episodes and you have them like two or three times a month, then you're positively reinforcing behaviors to um, engage with food and have a different relationship with food that likely can transform into an eating disorder if it isn't already. And so it's incredibly, incredibly nuanced. The mental health impacts of eating disorders are such that, you know, you're not going to get one without the other. You're likely also depressed, which means your rate for suicidality goes up, right? And that's why anorexia nervosa is so high in the mortality rate, because it's not just that you could restrict so much that your body literally shuts down and dies. It's that you might kill yourself first. And that's really, really challenging. That's really, really hard and triggering because, you know, the other ways that eating disorders can cause major mortalities is, you know, you can have sudden death. Your electrolytes might be so imbalanced with purging that your heart would literally stop. And you don't have to have any pre-existing conditions before that happens. It could just be the last time that you do. And I rarely say these things to clients because they're incredibly scary. It's like, gosh, if I purge the next time, that could be my loss. That's terrifying. But I think it presents a very, very grim and realistic picture as to why these disorders are so lost in the fray when it comes to mental health because they're complicated and many providers don't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole um and it's really really hard to find competent practitioners who know what the fuck they're talking about um and who aren't going to be fat phobic or enmeshed in their own diet culture or um prescriptive um, or or overly directive in a way that is unhelpful for your clinical presentation. You know, there's just a lot there. Yeah. And I feel like we just entered a therapy session for me personally, because ironically, <laughs> I, I actually am. Um, I, my diagnosis is like a little bit sketchy, but um, I'm like 60, 40 borderline personality disorder and bipolar. So I relate, I, yeah, it's a blast. Um, I relate entirely to specifically the mania because my eating disorder 
oh my goodness. I mean, I can be just killing it and doing so great. And if I get into a manic episode, it can be like, I just spent 10 hours deep cleaning my apartment and I stand up and I almost pass out because I'm like, oh shit, I haven't eaten anything like mm-hmm. at all. And it it feels like a high. There's like this like high that you kind of get off of that like lightheaded feeling with your stomach feeling really empty and you feeling getting the shakes. And of course, whenever I'm manic, I always am like, let's consume caffeine because I'm not entirely in the most rational headspace. And then that does not make anything better. Um, and then on the flip side of that, like with depression, if you fall back into then a depressive episode, um, one of the things that I have found I've had to really adjust and like hold grace for in my life is when I am depressed, I do not want to cook. I do not want to get up and make food. It is mm-hmm. like the big battle for me to stand up and walk over and make a piece of toast. Mm -hmm. And so something that I ended up actually formatting into my budget financially was Uber Eats. I was like, I need to have some room in my budget where I can order food and not feel guilty about ordering food and work it into my budget so that when I am so wildly depressed that I cannot get up, I order food And then I kind of feel forced to go down and get it because it's sitting there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then we have that. Or even like making room for myself of keeping things in my freezer that are very easy and very fast and are not hard to cook. Um, Because when I put the expectation on myself of every meal needs to be a home-cooked meal, I will end up eating one meal a day. Like I won't end up cooking. I just will end up not eating. Um, and so much of that is drastically impacted by whether I'm in a depressive episode or a manic episode. Um, cause I don't spend a lot of time in neutrality. I'm normally kind of one or the other. <laughs> right. And so it's like your work that you've done is really to dissociate from the distortion that everything has to be black and white. It's either this amazing meal that you've cooked that is incredibly nutritious and your dietitian would be like, a plus, Fina. Like you've got all of the bits and pieces, in right? There. Right. Um, or it's like completely trash, and you don't deserve to eat good food, and everything sucks, and you're yep. a failure anyway, right? Yep. And you know, add in um, biological mood swings, like actual things that are out of your control. Perhaps with a bipolar disorder and with a borderline personality disorder, it makes it to be very, very difficult. So what you're describing is this compassionate harm reduction approach that I think often gets left out of the conversation when it comes to eating disorders, because remission takes about seven to nine years on average. Yeah. That's one thing that I think is very misunderstood and not talked about enough is the fact that I have heard so many people talk about their eating disorders, specifically like eating disorder accounts on social media where people will say, um, like I've healed from my disorder and they've only been doing treatment for maybe a year. And it's like, oof, like please keep some space for yourself to realize that there's a good chance that you might fall back into those habits again and it might kind of come back with a fury when you're not expecting it to because I think if you don't have at least a little bit of preparedness for that and not necessarily like an expectation for it to happen but just kind of in the back of your brain of like if I do prevention yes exactly like if I do relapse like I have a plan I have like you know and even just kind of the awareness that it might happen again so it doesn't entirely catch you off guard um I've thought that I was totally fine, like after high school with like just diet culture and stuff. And then I got to college and realized I have to now cook for myself. Then I was fucked because <laughs> I mm-hmm. was like, I live in a dorm and I don't know what to do here. Um, and it was, it was the same thing where before, if I had been depressed and not able to eat, I had a parent in the house who maybe would provide a meal for me. And that wasn't something that was on my mind. And then I go to college and it's either now I have to prepare a meal for myself or I have to get up enough courage and enough drive and energy to walk over to the cafeteria, which that was a whole battle in itself. It was like, mm-hmm. I, I have social anxiety, like I'm depressed. I don't want to go over and see people and have, you know, risk people looking at me. It was just like, I'd rather just stay here and not eat. And Who so- wants to be perceived? Yeah, yeah, no, no kidding. No, no one. No, with no kidding. Yeah, and so it was very much so. It, I think that the assumption that 
you'll just get over it in like a year or two. It is not necessarily accurate. And it, you, things can, it's, it, I think for me, I, I feel triggered more by things that trigger my eating disorder than I do things that will trigger my PTSD. Like I have more eating disorder triggers than I do PTSD triggers. And so I have to be constantly aware of the fact that like, specifically with a mood disorder and a personality disorder, like you can't necessarily control when you're going to go into these episodes and all of a sudden now your drive to do anything is gone or your drive to do everything is so high up that you forget you need to, you know, give yourself Mm -hmm. nutrition. So it can Mm -hmm. be very uh, complicated. And like you said, there's a lot of layering. So that's like something that me and my therapist right now are tackling because it is the chicken or the egg. We, we sat down and my list of disorders is way too long. And so we sat down and we were like, hmm, what do we tackle first? Like, where do we think this started? And we right. sat there for like almost an hour going back and forth of, okay, well, what trauma do we start with first? And we both were just like, well, this one's really bad. But so mm, mm. <laughs> and we kind of ended up just settling like on something that just felt a little bigger than everything else. And we we're like, well, we'll start with this and see where it goes. But I mean, if you have layers of things like, oof, it can be really hard to try to figure out what, how to treat that. And I want to kind of transition a little bit into treatments because I think that that's another thing that can get a lot of it, a little bit lost in the noise is how do you receive treatment and what does that look like? Because like I said, in the media, at least from my personal experience, the, all I saw in the media was these like really intense, like inpatient centers where it looks kind of scary and, you know, they, they bring you toast and jello and like, you know, they sit there and count how much you eat. And that was always very frightening to me. And it, for me, it was, I am a very black or white person where living in the gray is not something that I do very well. And, um, so the idea I was either all in where now I'm checking myself into an inpatient center or it was, I do nothing. So, um, what are some treatments? I know inpatient is definitely an option, but even what are some stereotypes about inpatient care that maybe might not be entirely correct? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, first things first, just to to respond to what you said, because there's just a lot there around, you know, the layers and addressing the, the disorders, because I think in many ways, um, a lot of people don't don't want to because it's scary or feel ashamed of all of the different things that they experience. And so they may not get help for all of these different layers all at once, especially if your provider is saying, well, I'm only an eating disorder therapist. I'm not a trauma therapist, or I'm only someone who specializes in OCD and social anxiety. So I can do that, but then you've got to go somewhere else to deal with your eating disorder. So I think that can be incredibly frustrating and it, it really kind of creates these divisions within mental health that you should be working on one versus the other. And in fact, I think eating disorders are emotional disorders. They're transdiagnostic, which kind of leads to this idea that treatment should be piecemeal, which it shouldn't. It should be focused on the whole person. You should be working on, you know, the obsessive thoughts, the rigidity, the black and white thinking, interpersonal effectiveness, your relationship with food, understanding, you know, your macronutrients and why they are important, why you should be, you know, having things that that provide you with with just energy as opposed to whether it's nutritionally sound enough. And so inpatient treatment, I think, is scary for people because they don't want to think that their eating disorder is bad enough to require a team. They feel incredibly inadequate. They feel incredibly like overwhelmed by the possibility that it's either no treatment or all of the treatment. And um, in many ways, eating disorder treatment is overwhelming because the disorder is overwhelming. And so I think it matches the acuity. And I think most often than not, I see people who are afraid to go into the correct level of care because of their own preconceived notions about it, rather than allowing themselves to suspend judgment about themselves or about places um, in order to get the help that they they need. They might not they might not think that they deserve that deserve it, but they need it. And so I would say inpatient treatment is. It's one of those things where, you know, depends on the program. (laughs) 
you know, if you are in an inpatient slash residential, they're likely going to be more homey elements. You will have like support staff there that are, you know, warm and charismatic and can support you with your meals. And, you know, you'll have nurses on staff who can make sure that you're not orthostatic, right? Which is that description that you made of like standing up too quickly and then all of a sudden you're dizzy because orthostasis is a sudden drop in your blood pressure um, due to changing positions. And so that's really dangerous for your heart. And so, you know, things like that, although, you know, you're desensitized from experiencing them in your home and in your natural environment are actually serious medical phenomena that need support. And so whether or not you need an NG tube or you need, um, you know, just a whole team to deal with the complexity of your symptoms, inpatient residential treatment can be a really, really effective strategy for a lot of people with eating disorders. But I think where the problem lies is that, um, you know, sometimes there are people in treatment that are challenging to deal with. You've got to deal with other people. (laughs) You know, that's the biggest concern about inpatient treatment um, that I like to dispel. I'm like, it's likely that you will have more conflict with other patients than you will with your therapist. (laughs) And it is likely that treatment will produce more real life situations. It will it will mimic reality more than you anticipate because it's like a little town, <laughs> you know, you've right. got everything there. And so inpatient, it's not just you and your team, right? It's everybody else as well too. And so that I would say is the part that people need to understand and become more aware of because they think that everything's going to be like a giant sleepover, which I think it might be if everyone had trauma and was struggling with like, being functional and medically stable, right? Like that's a a nightmare for some people. Um, You know, I think other types of treatment are like step downs from inpatient and residential and can be first point of access for people, um, especially if their symptoms are not super severe. Like we're talking about really severe symptoms for inpatient and residential treatment, but day treatment, something that you go to kind of like school, you know, eight to two, kind of classes that you take, group classes, individual therapy, nutritional support, meal support. Those are all components of day treatment, um, as well as intensive outpatient treatment, which is kind of like after school (laughs) programs or like day programs where you might come for like 10 to 2. You might come a little later in the day. You don't have to be there like 8 to 2 because it's just a little less intensive. Um, And then, you know, intensive outpatient, like the night programs are like, you know, if you have a full-time job and your first point of access to treatment is going to a program three days a week where you can have someone help you with a meal. Um, You can see your therapist, you can attend a group, develop some community to feel less alone. That is a huge, huge place. And I think in many instances, I think intensive outpatient and IOPs, as we call them, um, there should be more of them because I think that is probably the most effective, accessible point of treatment for people. I think a lot of people end up going to outpatient therapy, which is essentially, you know, sitting with your therapist once a week or once every two weeks with eating disorder symptoms. I think it would be remiss to think that there are a lot of therapists, unless someone is in high remission, to see them once a month. There's just so many symptoms that happen in a month (laughs) that you can miss. Um, But that's just a, a point of contact, right? What can you do with 50 minutes once a week? How can you unravel a history of a relationship with food in three months? I think dispelling the expectations as treatment becomes less intensive, you need to dispel the expectation that your eating disorder will remit faster. The likelihood that you remit faster, depending on your acuity, depending on extenuating circumstances, and this is all based on that, that you will get more traction with your eating disorder with higher levels of care is more likely than if you had a severe eating disorder and you started to go once a week of therapy. Even with an eating disorder clinician, eating disorder therapist, we can't be there all the time for every symptom. And likely you're not telling us about all the symptoms anyway. That's the hiccup because that I literally had therapy today and I had just talked with a friend about the fact that I am just 
50 minutes is a, that is a very hard timeline to try to kind of update someone on your week and like how things have gone and like how you're feeling in this moment, because that's going to change week to week. And then also feel comfortable enough and be able to kind of access that vulnerable state of mind to then be able to really tap into some deep and serious stuff and start to kind of like unpack some roots. Um, For me, it's like, I feel like that would kick in around like hour three, (laughs) but like in 50 minutes, I so often catch myself like just venting about like, well, so-and-so like did this this week. And it has like nothing to do with any of my actual trauma. And my therapist will kind of keep trying to intervene and like redirect. And I'm just like on a roll of like, no, 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 we're going to vent about my best friend who just got a job. And it's just like so random. And then the 50 minutes is over and I'm like, okay, I could have vented to my mom. Like (laughs) I did not need to do this in a therapy session where I like, you know, I just basically wasted my time. Um, and I, it's so hard to tap into that vulnerable headspace, like just right off the bat, because it's, that's very frightening. Like it's very scary to be vulnerable with somebody and, or at least for me, I don't know if it is for everybody, but for me, I I feel frightened. So I think that the anxiety of that can sometimes, um, I found that I would tap into vulnerability so much quicker and, um, get deeper and find more healing in a support group setting where there were other people there who were also being vulnerable. And I think it just kind of created this, like, I didn't just feel embarrassed or awkward, like sharing all of my trauma. Cause it was like, other people are also doing it. And then they would say something that would remind me of something that I also struggled with. And then it would kind of do this, um, you know, kind of bowling ball effect where now everyone is sharing things. Um, but like you said, like any type of group or outpatient, I mean, it, I've tried to find just even support groups, which are still kind of on that lower level. Like even support groups are so hard to find and are almost like they're very rarely covered by insurance and they can be pretty costly if they're out of network. And like, it can be really hard to find that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little bit tricky and it does do especially when you're already struggling with energy, it can be hard to kind of then use your energy to try to research. <laughs> That's one of my biggest things is I'll have, I'll even talk to my dad cause he's the insurance guru and I'll say, Oh, I can't find anybody. And he's okay. Well, here's the numbers you can call. Here's the people you can email. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, sorry. My energy level is not at par to be able to do that this week. Um, and so I guess a good little tidbit would be, someone's listening to this and a lot of what you have said has resonated with them and maybe they're starting to think, Ooh, this might be something that I struggle with and maybe something that I really do need to get help for. And I hadn't really thought about that in the past, or maybe people who are aware and know they need help, but aren't really sure how to start. What would be like the first or second step that you would suggest people to take? Like if people can just do one kind of call to action out of this episode, like what would your number one thing be to suggest to people? My number one thing to suggest to people. I think that's hard because it really depends on your socioeconomic status and um, your ability to access the investment. Of that's valid. Um. But I would say, you know, a really, really easy first step is to Google the word eating disorder. Go on the NIDA website. <laughs> Go on the, the resources page. See if there are things that relate to you. If you, you know, look at what I eat in a day videos on YouTube, try looking at my recovery journey videos right? Start looking at and engaging in content, whether that's on your Instagram feed or your Twitter feed or just in your friend group. Start setting boundaries around the ways that diet culture and disordered eating patterns may show up in your life. And then the second thing I would do is go on uh, a therapy directory, whether that's like inclusivetherapist.com or psychology today. and Refined by eating disorder and pick the warmest face and the person you feel the most safe with and start there. That's great advice. Um, And I will link those. I know a lot of people are not aware of psychology today. um, And it's a great resource. That is how I found 
I think like almost every therapist I've had and how I found specifically support groups. Cause that is where I have found that I, it, it really, it really works for me. Support groups really work for me. And that is how I found them. So I will link all of that. Um, but yeah, and I would not that I have the credentials to be seconding information that you're giving, but I would second the social media aspect because I think that one of the number one things that helped me was going through my following list, like who I was following and eliminating anybody who was perpetuating diet culture. I had followed so many people. I followed the Kardashians and I would see these, you know, the teas and the sugar bear hair shit. And I totally bought into it. Like there were so many times when I almost went and ordered that like fit tea or whatever. Cause I was like, Oh yeah. Like anything that can help. It's a glorified laxative. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Don't take it. (laughs) So thank God that I didn't. Um, but that was where I started off was I just, I had so many different images on my feed that perpetuated all of those ideas and so many diet culture posts that I was seeing on a daily basis. And once I started to switch those out for creators who were um, like outspoken about dismantling fat phobia and were very open about um, even talking about eating disorder tendencies that, like you said, have become so normal that they're not even in the category of eating disorder tendencies. Like people just think it's just how you live. Mm-hmm. And once I made those little steps to start off with, I think that it kind of started to like soften my heart and my mind a little bit to th- open the door of maybe I have an eating disorder. And it, it wasn't a, something, a door that I could open right off the bat because I had spent so much of my life convincing people that I did not. And so it took a while to kind of convince myself that maybe I did. And I think that starting to refine my social media and be intentional about what type of content I was intaking actually really drastically made a difference, um, which was really important and really helpful. Um, but yeah, I think that that's something that is like a really great starting point. Um, and I guess my other question is for people who, uh, maybe don't have access to insurance and don't have access to any type of healthcare. Um, are there any, do you know of any free resources that are online that may be helpful or any type of resources that might be more accessible for people who don't have the privilege of healthcare? Yeah, I think, you know, a really great resource that I've used a lot with my clients is the Nalgona Positivity Pride. It's an organization um, dedicated to dismantling diet culture, and they've got great support groups specifically for BIPOC and for Black um, individuals, just because there's not, like I said, not a lot of treatment, not all of the issues targeted towards them. Um I would say, you know, free resources um, are really hard to come by with eating disorders. Um, But a great place to start would be the National Eating Disorder Association. So need a website. Um, If you're in Canada, NEDIC, the National Eating Disorder Information Center. Um, And I think going there can really, one, get you connected to resources that you had no idea were even there. There may be providers that offer really low cost services um, on their directories. There may be support groups or, um, you know, scholarships or bursaries to, to engage in treatment that you have no idea are available. And, you know, only in America do we need um, scholarship and bursary money to engage in healthcare, um, which I think is, a problem in and of itself, but um, I think it's important to realize that looking at these major resources can be a first starting out guide to not only realizing what you need to do and where to go and what treatment centers are out there and how much it costs and and what it is, but how to start talking to other people. Because I think there's a culture of silence with eating disorders. And so if you are ashamed or worried about what it looks like to feel like you're lost in disordered eating or you have this unhealthy relationship with food, sometimes just talking about it with someone else can give you access to an important resource that you had no idea was available, right? You know, if you bring it up in uh, a trusted friend group, someone might share 
a resource. Someone might engage with a workbook. I think uh, the body image workbook, um, I actually don't know the author, but it is just the body image workbook on, um, you know, at your local bookseller or on Amazon um, is, is a really good resource to developing a different relationship with your body. If you're kind of curious about eating disorders, you don't know if you have it. Um, Life Without Ed um, by Jenny Schaefer is a great book to pick up. Um, uh, Body Posse Panda on Instagram, she has a book called Body Positive Power that talks about her experiences. And the book is, you know, layered with trigger warnings um, that allow you to engage with the material that best fits, um, you know, your capacity and your energy at the time. Um, I also really like Rebecca Scritchfield's book, uh, Body Kindness. And it has great exercises inside about healing your relationship with food, healing your relationship with exercise, as well as Christy Harrison's podcast, Anti-Diet, as well as her book, Anti-Diet, Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology. I mean, I could keep going, but <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> that's, a, resources. that's a great place to start. And like I said, I will link all of that in episode notes and kind of just create a little bit of a, a master list just to start get people started. I know so many people who, especially during the pandemic post-college, you know, lost their jobs or lost, you know, are no longer living with their parents and who just don't have access to healthcare right now. And I think that that can be so challenging, especially when you're in a very transitional period of your life where you might be starting to explore a lot of those different mental kind of uh, traumas that might have happened or different aspects of your mental health that maybe you haven't explored before. So I think that that'll be really helpful, but yeah, I will link all of that. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. I wanted to give you a shot as well to just plug anything that you have to plug, like where can people find you? Um, what services do you offer, etc. cetera? Mm-hmm. You can find me on Instagram at thrive underscore with Meg or visit my group practice uh, website. If you are based in Toronto and you're looking for therapy, uh, hit us up <laughs> or in Ontario, since we are virtual practice, um, you can find us at bloom psychology or on IG at bloom underscore psychology. You can contact me via my personal website, watson-psychotherapy.com. I cannot guarantee that I will respond to you the next day. My inbox is a nightmare. Um, But I really am open to to questions and and just connecting with people in a more authentic way, in a really transparent way about, um, you know, what they're experiencing, what they're going through. Um, I think... My general thing is I'm not accepting clients, but I'm happy to help you um, connect to a resource or someone who is. And, um, you know, don't be afraid to to ask questions. I think a lot of people get in their heads about what it means to ask for help and what it means about them to need help. And so if there's one thing that I can leave you with is. You know, if there is someone that you think might be able to help you or if there is like, you know, a therapy, a therapist online or there's someone that you're like, oh, wow, they have like so much information, send them a message. They may not get back to you right away, but I promise you that at least for me, I see it all and I do my best to connect um, with resources. So, yeah, that's it for me. Awesome. Well, I think that will be really helpful. And I appreciate too you just being open for questions. I think so often it's hard to find creators that you really look up to and really like and feel like, Oh, they'd be so great. And if they're not accepting clients, it's like, Oh fuck. Like, what do I do now? And it's so helpful when people take the time to explain and try to, you know, guide you to someone who might be able to help you. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I think it's going to be really helpful for people to hear from someone who is licensed and knows what they're talking about. Cause I could do an episode. I don't know what I'm talking about. I have lived experience, but other than that, like I do not have the clinical experience or the education. So I deeply appreciate you coming on and sharing an educated perspective. I thank you for that, but I want to challenge you to decolonize or de-westernize your idea of expertise and to realize that lived experience is experience. Yes. And in many I, ways you can grow and teach and, and lead and at the same time be mindful of like the ethical standpoint of 
providing health yeah. information without a degree. <laughs> yes. And see, that is where my hiccup comes in. Cause as much as I can preach my personal perspective, which I do, I'm like always like, well, I definitely don't have the education to speak on this. And this is something that even for me, it's great to hear you speak because this is something that I'm still actively working through. Like I am in no way like past this chapter in my life. I'm not in remission entirely. So hearing from someone who is very educated and knows as much as you do is even just helpful just for me, which I always love episodes where I feel like I'm like very actively learning as we're talking and processing and reflecting. Um, but yeah, so thank you again for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. There's wisdom in the middle path. Yeah. We talked a lot about wise, um, like black and white thinking. And so, you know, we're learning about both. And so I am deeply appreciative and, and grateful for you using your space and your voice to educate and to teach people and to make safe spaces for these conversations. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I will... Uh, link everything for Megan so that you guys can find her. And um, as for that, that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at Serafina blog and visit us online at serafinablog.com. And as always to end our time unclench your jaw, take a deep breath And remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will see you guys next week.